We want to continue our series on the life of peace from the book of Philippians, chapters 3 and 4. And as we do so, we've entitled this message, Pressing Toward the Goal. Pressing Toward the Goal. If you are like most individuals, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or you're a new Christian, or perhaps you're not even a Christian, but you're reading the Bible or studying it for the first time, trying to find out what it's all about, all of us are tempted as we read it when we read of a particular prophet or a priest or a king, some author in the scriptures, to think that that person was very different to ourselves. That that individual was a sort of super Christian, a super follower of God with abilities far beyond what you and I have. But if and when we think that, we rob ourselves of significant truth. Because what we find in the scriptures, and we'll see it in this passage, is that These individuals who wrote parts of the scripture or that the scriptures speak about, they didn't consider themselves to be super Christians. They didn't consider themselves to be a cut above everyone else. That's not why they were chosen to write what they wrote. What Paul says of himself as a Christian in this passage is true of every true Christian as well. And Paul makes that quite clear in verses 15 and 16, where after he's spoken about himself and what he's doing, he then moves on in verses 15 and 16 to start talking about we and us, that is, joining with the Philippian Christians and saying we're all in this together. What I am describing is a description of you as well. And so throughout this book, as well as his other writings, and really all the biblical writings, what we constantly see is that what the gospel authors speak of is supposed to encapsulate the Christian experience for all Christians. For the Christian experience is a shared experience. And let's see how this unfolds. We'll consider three key statements that must be experienced by every Christian, and then we'll consider three key doctrines that must be embraced by every Christian. And all of these have as their goal what Paul has already told us in these verses. He is pressing towards the goal. What's the goal? It's Christ-likeness. He, as a Christian, is pressing toward that goal of becoming more like Jesus every day. And he says that should be the goal of every Christian as well. And so we begin with the first key statement that must be the experience of every Christian. And this is it. Christ must lay hold of a person. Christ must lay hold of a person. Paul tells us in verse 12 that Christ laid hold of him, and by extension, that is what must happen to every individual so that they can turn from being a non-Christian to a Christian, or what the Bible describes as from death to life, darkness to light. Verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained all of this, that is, he has not arrived at his destination of becoming like Christ the way he wants to, Or that I've already arrived at my goal, he says, but rather I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Now, don't get confused by the kind of strange language there. It is a a sort of rhetorical device he's using. What he's saying is, I want to hold on to and grasp and obtain what Christ has already done for me when he took hold of me and translated me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, or when he pulled me, so to speak, into the kingdom of heaven. He's expressing something about how he became a Christian. What happens? What's the experience when a person becomes a Christian? You might remember on that famous occasion as he went down to Damascus, he was suddenly laid hold of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations say he was apprehended or grasped. 
Just like we might say, the police have recently apprehended a thief or a criminal. That's the idea. They've taken hold of him. They've arrested him in his tracks. And Paul says, I was arrested in my tracks and taken hold of by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he tells us a bit more about it in his own words in Acts 26. He says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. The chief priests had given him a mission, go out, persecute Christians, this, these followers of Jesus, throw them in jail where you can, persecute them, take their stuff, do whatever you can to disrupt this new Christian community. And the chief priests of the Jewish nation had given him this authority. And he says about noon, as he's on his way, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that's a very strange phrase there at the end. But let's take the first phrase. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul might have answered, well, hold on. I'm not persecuting you, Jesus, so much as I'm persecuting all of your followers. But, of course, you remember what Jesus said in the gospel accounts. If they persecute you, my followers, they're really persecuting me through you. And that, the follower, the disciple of Jesus, should expect to be treated like Jesus himself was. And, of course, we remember that Jesus was despised and rejected even by his own countrymen. So he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you enacting this violence against my people? And then he makes this phrase. God says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That was a a particular phrase back in the days where you would have horse-drawn carriages and carts and chariots. The goads were a, a sort of sharp stick or a pointy object. You'd have several of them where if the horse decided to, to get a little out of hand or he just figured he didn't want to be in the traces anymore, he didn't want to pull that particular chariot or that cart, he might kick backwards and start jumping all around. And when he would kick backwards, those little pricks would hit his legs as he kicked and poked him. And when they poke him, he would realize, you know what, this is, this is not going my way. I don't think I'm going to win this particular battle, so I'm going to just calm down and I'm going to do whatever the driver says. It's a way of saying, Saul... Why are you fighting against what is inevitable? Saul, why are you trying to beat me? You're going to lose. And Saul realized that was exactly the case, and he humbled himself and became a follower of Jesus as a result. Jesus Christ, in that instance, had arrested Paul in his journey. He had taken hold of Paul, and he wasn't going to let go. And now, Paul, decades later, is looking back And he's remembering that experience, how God took hold of him and still has a firm grasp on him. A bit like a loving father might place his hand on his child's shoulder or arm so that as they're crossing the street or in a busy area of the city, that child, even if he gets the notion to run out in the street or he sees something that's really attractive and wants to run off, that firm grip of the father is going to hold on to him out of love. So too, God, our Heavenly Father, arrests individuals in their journey and grabs them, snags them from life's path, we might say. As the hymn writer says it, O love that will not let me go, or in his grip of grace I rest. That's what Saul, now Paul, is telling us. But what was the goal or the purpose of God arresting Paul on his journey? What was the purpose of nabbing Paul that way? 
Well, Paul says he was saved, as is every Christian, in order that he might reach a particular goal or outcome. What's the goal or outcome? Verse 10, to know Christ fully and completely. And when he uses that word know, he's not talking about just a list of truths about Christ, but to have a true relationship with Christ and be made more and more into the image of Christ. The goal for which Paul, and remember, by extension, the Philippian Christians that he's preaching to and that he's sending this letter to, and you and I as Christians today, if we're a follower of Christ, the goal for every Christian is to be held by Christ and as a result, to become more like Christ, step by step, growing in that relationship each day. And as sin loses its hold on redeemed Christians, they also begin to produce the life of Christ in their souls. And this is the glorious doctrine of sanctification. This introduces for us three important terms. If you're not familiar with these, but you're a Christian, these are vitally important to understand and to know. The first is the doctrine or the term of justification. It's found in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul, speaking about his experience, he says, My goal, my desire, is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, here's what I need, and here's what every human being on the planet needs. I need to not have my own goodness, my own obedience to the law, because I can never measure up to God's perfect standard. I need God's righteousness. This is the doctrine of Christian justification, meaning when God arrests a person, when he takes hold of a person, he causes that individual to be made right in his sight. By nature, we're sinners in his sight, we have broken his laws, and we deserve judgment. But Jesus came to take that judgment, to take our sin, and he will give us his perfect righteousness or his absolute goodness. And when that happens, we are made justified. That's the, the moment in which God, so to speak, grabs us from where we're at and sets us on the path of life. It's the starting point when a person becomes a Christian. But verse 10 he makes clear is what happens after that. And that's his main subject for verses 12 to 16 is sanctification. What do I do once he's taken hold of me? Once he's placed me on that path of life, what do I do now? And the answer is sanctification, which is growing daily, step by step, to be more like Christ each day. He says it this way in verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to become like him. He wants to experience the full gamut, persecution, death, resurrection, everything that God intends for him, he wants to experience. He wants to grow to be more and more like Jesus. And then verse 11, he tells us the third key word, and that is glorification. He says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Eventually, he says, I do want to arrive. I, I do want to get there. I do want the goal to be satisfied. That's the doctrine of glorification, which is the idea that when we finish this life, whether Christ returns in our lifetime or when we die and go to be with him, he will make us to be what we were always intended to be. He will finish the job. That is, he will give us a new body, which cannot be affected by sin any longer a resurrected body, like the resurrected body of Christ. 
He will change our nature so that we can never go back to the ways of sin. We will have true freedom in our spirit and soul. And so Paul describes, leading up to the verses we're looking at today, he, he describes this path that must be the experience of every true Christian. First, we need to be made right in God's sight, justified. Then we need to grow. Once we're on the path, we need to grow step by step, becoming more like Jesus, knowing him better, having that relationship fostered over time. And then finally, looking ahead to the day when all of it will come to its full resolution, when we can, in a sense, say, I've arrived, not by my own work, but by what God has done for me. But now let's return to those three key statements. You remember the first is that we must be held or grasped by God. He must take hold of us. The second is that the Christian has to remember they've not arrived at their goal. No matter what progress we've made in our Christianity, we've never yet arrived. Paul makes that very clear at the beginning of verse 12. And he says, I haven't obtained this already. I haven't arrived at the goal. Now, if anyone was farther along in the process than most of us in this room, it was probably someone like the Apostle Paul. And yet, he's the first one to put up his hand and say, nope, I haven't, I haven't arrived. I haven't figured this out. I still have much progress to make. And the reality is, as you grow as a Christian, you'll realize more and more each day how far you have to go, how unlike Jesus we really are the depths of sin and depravity in our heart, our inherent selfishness, how often we want to go our way instead of his way, how we fail to make progress each day like we should. And so there must be this realization that as Christians, we have not arrived and we are not going to arrive in this life. Paul knows he's saved. He's made that clear. He knows he's a Christian. He knows he's been justified. Verse 9 shows that clearly. What he's dissatisfied with is his lack of sufficient progress, as he sees it, in becoming like Jesus. Do, do you have that sense, if you're a Christian, that, a, a sense of dissatisfaction? I, I'm not as far along this path as I would like to be. I, I don't have as much of Jesus in my life as I should. I, I haven't made the strides that I should in my Christian life up to this point. There should be what we might call a sanctified dissatisfaction with our life. Paul realized he had not arrived, and this is the realization of every true Christian as well. Much more progress is needed, but notice what he says in verse 13, and this is vitally important for each of us. If you want to progress in your Christian life, one of the things you must not do is constantly be looking back to the past or getting fixated on what God has done for you in the past. We'll explain what we mean after we look at verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I haven't arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now, Paul is not saying whatever's happened to you up to this point is irrelevant. No, not at all. I mean, he's uh, recounted for us multiple experiences in his past, both in this book and elsewhere, telling us, this is where I came from. This is what God's done for me. But he's not dwelling back there. He's not fixating on the past. He's not living off of his past experiences. Where's his focus? Not looking back over his shoulder at what God has done, but looking forward to Jesus and the progress he still needs to make in his Christian journey. And that should be the focus of every Christian. We read the story of Paul's conversion, his miraculous and tremendous experiences, we hear of his receiving visions from God and taking the gospel to new 
places where it had never been preached. But he refused to glory in any of that. We've already seen in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, all that stuff that maybe has been accomplished, I count it as garbage. Not that it's all bad. That's not what he's saying. But rather, it's not as vitally important as taking that next step and growing to be like Christ. Most of us, if we've lived for any length of time, we're probably familiar with the type of individual, maybe you have a few friends like this, who is constantly living in the past, reliving the glory days, whatever those were, maybe it was high school, their gap year, or their time at university. And these type of individuals, we quickly are able to, to figure out what's going on in a conversation. Everything that comes up in a conversation by anyone else, they immediately start joining in and referring to something that happened back in their glory days. But it's really rather sad and pathetic when you think about it because we realize they probably accomplished absolutely nothing in the last 30 years of their life because they're always just reliving that time in their past. They're not moving forward at all. And when we see that in real life, in real terms, in the situation perhaps with a friend or a family member of ours, it's distressing, it's sad. But for the Christian, it's not just distressing or sad. It's an eternal danger. It keeps us from growing in our Christian life the way we should. And Paul warns us about this. We too are to be careful not to live in the past, but it's, it's far too easy to do this. Let me give you a few suggestions of how this often happens. And it's deceptive. So consider this. No matter what age bracket you're in, no matter what background, consider these few illustrations. For instance, for an older Christian, that is a Christian who's been a Christian, let's say, for several decades, it's easy to look back and see, you know, I've seen what God has done in my life personally, perhaps in the life of our church. He's worked in my life in many years, and you know what? I've, I've hit a point now, I'm just going to kind of coast. I, I can just kind of, you know, keep things going, but I don't need to strive. I don't need to keep pressing ahead. I'm just going to coast from now on. Maybe let the young people, they can do it now. I've, I've done my time, and that's it. That is terribly unsafe as a mindset. Or you could do it in the life of a church. We've, we just finished our 45th year as a church and celebrated that 45th anniversary. But sadly, statistics show us that after about 30 years of a church lifespan, they enter into this uh, situation, if they're not careful, it's very easy for them to get complacent. That is, they say, you know what? We, we've now been established some of the struggles we had early on. Those are done away with, where it may be at a little bit better uh, position with many people that are coming. We're at a better position financially, whatever it is. Now we can just kind of keep things rolling on, but not striving, not pressing ahead. We're happy. We have enough people. Therefore, we don't need to go out and spread the gospel. We can just kind of do church stuff our way and coast. That, too, is a terrible tragedy when it happens. And that's why from the age of about 30 years to about 40 or 50 years, many churches begin to falter. It's not seen right away. But they begin to decline because what are they doing? They're living off past experience. God's been faithful in the past. I don't need to do anything now. Oh, we must be careful. Many young Christians can do this as well. They might look back, wow, God saved me. I, I didn't come from a Christian background or whatever your background is, but God has saved me. He's done this for me. He's answered prayer. I've seen him do all this. But then you, you sort of get complacent. You stop striving. 
You stop being consistent in the word and prayer. And you begin to stagnate. And, and you wonder what's going on. You're not making any progress. So we have the, that the, the truth that the Christian must be taken hold of by God, must realize he or she has not arrived yet. And thirdly, the Christian must long to become more like Jesus and grow in their Christian life. Once we realize we haven't arrived, then that should increase a longing within us, as it did in the Apostle Paul, as it did in the Philippian Christians, to keep striving, to keep pressing ahead. He says it this way in verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You remember that Paul, later on in his life, shortly before he dies, he writes a few books to Titus and Timothy, two of the young men he had discipled and who were ministering in churches that Paul had influenced. And even in those letters, towards the end of his life, after multiple decades of ministry, what does he ask for? He says, please send so-and-so to me. I need spiritual encouragement. And send the books, the parchments. That is, send me some of the Bible, so to speak, biblical writings, so that I can keep growing and keep studying, even as I'm in jail in this dungeon. See, Paul realized right up until the last moment he needed to be striving and moving forward. There's a lovely Christian theologian, pastor, and evangelist who passed away a few years ago at the age of 95. And what I love about his testimony, among other things, not only had he written many books, he was continuing to preach and teach and travel into his 90s, but he passed away in his sleep one night. Earlier that day, he'd been writing yet another article, another essay to help Christians understand the Bible better, which was part of his calling. He hadn't finished it, but he was ready to finish it in the morning, to keep going. He had a full schedule ahead. He was going to do everything he could to keep ministering the way God called him to and to keep growing in his relationship to lead he and his wife, who had been married 60-some years, to lead his children and grandchildren. He was pressing forward. At an age when most people have stopped striving for anything, he was pressing forward because he understood what God's word tells us in passages like this. Paul was pressing, he was striving, he was seeking to grow every day to take one more step today towards Christ's likeness. Christian, do you realize that God has laid hold of you and he's continuing to hold on to you? He will continue to hold on to you. And he'll never let you go. And that he expects you, first of all, to realize you haven't yet attained the goal. We haven't yet arrived. And that we need to keep striving. Let me mention uh, three other doctrines. We considered three doctrinal terms. Justification, sanctification, glorification. But let's consider a few doctrinal applications. First, you will never reach perfection in this life if you are a Christian. It's impossible. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive towards Christ's likeness, but we do need to realize we're never going to make it. We're never going to arrive this side of heaven until we go to be with God. And he gives us that wonderful blessing of glorification. A friend of mine, some years ago, he went to a Christian university in the States, 
And this university had uh, somewhat of a Christian past, although uh, today it's, it's not really in that vein any longer. But the particular Christian tradition that this university had been founded with was uh, what's called the Nazarene um, denomination. And part of their belief system is that you can become spiritually perfect in this life. And so my friend, first day at university, he goes into his dormitory, and on his floor, the first guy who met him came down the hall, hello, my name is John, and I haven't sinned in seven years. That was the introduction. Now, even I think a non-Christian who understands what sin is, according to the Bible, would realize the absurdity of that statement. I jokingly said to my friend when he told me this, I said, I would be sorely tempted in such a situation to punch the guy in the nose and I would assume he would respond in anger, and then I could say, aha, you broke your seven-year streak. I really wouldn't push, punch a person in the nose, but it, it was just sort of a, a nice imaginative uh, daydream. But I said, how did you respond to that? He said, how do you respond to that? Something so absurd, something so ridiculous. I haven't sinned in seven years. But of course, anyone who's bragging about the fact that they haven't sinned in seven years is guilty of the sin of pride, which means you have sinned in seven years because you're proud of it. It's completely ridiculous. And that illustrates for us the reality of what that young man should have known if he had opened up his Bible and read it, which is we'll never arrive in this life. We'll never get to that sinless state of perfection. But that is not what Jesus told us to do. What he said is to grow more like him each day to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, to continue to apply the truth of God, to walk in step with the spirit, to make progress. That's the goal. Consistent day-by-day -day progress, not perfection. The goal in this life is not to arrive, but to strive and to make steady progress towards Christ-likeness. But secondly, we have to understand as we make that steady progress, it needs to be steady progress. True sanctification can't happen in large jumps. It can't be attained suddenly. Throughout the New Testament, sanctification is described as an ongoing process that is difficult, that's challenging. And what that means is, in order to mature as a Christian, you must realize you're not a mature Christian. Every day we need to realize just how far we need to go and, and choose to take that next step. Paul says, I'm pressing towards the mark. I'm going to keep striving, I'm going to keep pressing until my last breath to become more like Jesus. As an old gospel song says it, more of Jesus, less of me. That's exactly it. That should be the attitude of every Christian. It's as if when we wake up in the morning, we should say, all right, God, how can I grow one step closer to you and a bit more like you today? That should be part of our goal for every day. I enjoy reading of explorers of various eras. And one of, the ones, one of the time periods, I should say, that I find intriguing are the Antarctic explorers of the earliest earlier 20th century. And uh, one of them, Mawson, our own Australian explorer and scientist, is of uh, particular interest to me. But there was a study that was done of all these early explorers. Some of them were trying to find, uh, be the first one to the South Pole, some to the magnetic South Pole, some to be the first one to cross all of Antarctica from one side to the other. But whatever the goal, they did a study of how these groups from Scandinavian countries, from the UK, from Australia and elsewhere, how they went about accomplishing that. And there were two primary ways that these groups used. One said, you know what, uh, we're going to, uh, with dog sleds and, and all the stuff that we have, we're going to make as much progress as we can 
on the good days, the days when the weather is mild or, or okay, because some of you might know in Antarctica it has some of the strongest winds in the world. And they said, on the good days, we're going to break camp. We're going to go from uh, dawn till dusk. We're going we're to go at it full on and get as much mileage or as many kilometers as we can covered. But when a blizzard or a windstorm or something like that comes, it's exceptionally cold, way below freezing abnormally. So then we'll just kind of hunker down in our tents. We won't break camp for the day. We'll wait until it's a little nicer, and then we'll make better progress. And they did make huge strides on certain days. But then there were other groups, like Mawson's, who said, no, we're going to try to make at least some progress every day. It doesn't matter if it's a blizzard. It doesn't matter if we can barely see our hand in front of our face. It doesn't matter if the wind is strong enough almost to blow us over. And we do have some early footage of these men where they would have to almost crawl along the ice so they wouldn't get blown over and toppled over. He said, we're going to make some progress every day. Break camp, doesn't matter if it's nice or not. We'll break camp, and we're going to at least get something done. And yes, on the nicer days, we'll, we'll get a little farther than the others. And what they discovered is, without exception, those expeditions that said, we're going to make some progress every day, inevitably, when you added it all up, they made more progress on average. They were far more likely to reach their goal. And in the end, most of them did reach their goal. That's a great illustration for us. Many of us, what we want is to say, you know what? There's going to be sometimes I want to make some really great strides as a Christian. I want to become more like Jesus today or this week. And we, we do all this effort and we, we think we can grow in fits and starts. Uh, we think we can do this sort of magic formula where we'll grow heaps today and do nothing for the next five days. That's not how it works. The way it works is one step in front of the other, making slow, steady progress each and every day. As one philosopher and well-known thinker said, speaking about something different, he used this phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what Christian sanctification is. It's waking up every morning, how can I be more like Christ today? In what I say, how I treat my spouse, how I respond to my children, how I pray, how I worship and serve at church, how I tell my coworkers and family members of Christ and what he's done for me. How can I be a little bit more like him today? So where are you at, listener? You who are joining with us in person, online, how, if you needed to take a sort of spiritual inventory, how would you describe where you're at in that process? Let's start with this. Has, has Christ even laid hold of you? Is he holding on to you right now? Perhaps he's clearly calling you. You know you're not a Christian, but he's calling you. Are you listening? Are you responding? Just like Paul, in his situation, it was foolish for him to try to run away from God. So too it's foolish for any human being. If God is calling to you, if he's working in your heart and life, then respond. You must be certain that God is holding on to you, that he has arrested you in your tracks, that he has changed you from the kingdom of darkness to light, and that your sins are forgiven and you have been made right in God's sight. And for those of you who have been taken hold of by God, you have been apprehended by him and arrested in your tracks, are you, are you growing? Have you realized you've not yet arrived, that you can't just simply coast? Have we realized as a collective church body, we can't just keep doing things the way we've been doing it, hoping that all is well because we're, we're just, we're content and we're not going to strive for anything more than what we've already experienced. 
Are you constantly looking back in your past instead of moving ahead? How are you going in your growth in Christ's likeness? Are you taking a step each day? This is the method. Daily, steady progress in Christ's likeness. May God give us the grace we need as his followers to actively choose each and every day to put one foot in front of the other on this path that God has set us on. Let's pray. Father, for those who do not know you yet as their personal Lord and Savior, who have not yet been taken hold of by you and don't have that assurance that you are holding on to them even this moment, you have not placed them on the path of life. They are still in their sins. May they not run from you, but rather may they run to you and respond to your grace to confess their sin and receive your forgiveness in Christ. And for my fellow believers, Lord, help us not to become complacent. Complacency destroys so many churches. It harms our gospel witness. And it hurts us as individuals. May we not constantly be looking back to what you did in the past and living back there, but striving looking ahead, praying for you to break through now, to answer prayer now, for us to become more like you today, to walk in step with your spirit and your word's guidance today. We pray all this in your name. Amen.